friends, uh, I was um, asked to say a few words about rabbinic authority and personal autonomy and to do so in half an hour. Now, I can do half of that in half an hour and we will perhaps sit together some other time and talk about rabbinic authority. But I want to say just a few words, if I may, about personal autonomy. See, I made a discovery this year, uh, reading the uh, newspapers after the Oscar ceremonies. When a new word enters the vocabulary, you are in the presence of something very interesting and intriguing. And I discovered a new word after this year's Oscar ceremonies, which fascinates me. The word is selfie. Do you, do you know what that is? Selfie is you take a photograph of yourself together with whoever you happen to be with and that is the word of our time. And I think actually if you were to ask what is the avodazara of our time it would have to be the worship of the self. Now I just want to share with you just a few thoughts about why this is not a good idea. And I begin with the figure that I think is the figure for our time. The man who had everything, who drove a Ferrari and dressed in Armani and had Picassos on the wall. His name was Kohelet. Kohelet was the man who had everything. He lived in Fifth Avenue and had holiday homes all over the world. He, he was not quite the wolf of Wall Street, but almost he had everything. And yet, having everything, he comes to the conclusion that Havel, Havalim, Hakol, Havel, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. How is this possible for somebody who has everything that his heart desires? And I just want to share with you as a beginning, as a way into this subject, something that happened to me when I was your age and I came here to the States to meet Rabbanim who I thought could help me wrestle with some of the problems that I was wrestling with at the time and I had the great zuchut of coming here uh, I don't think this building quite existed but I had the zuchut of meeting the Rav Zetzal and we sat for a long time and he spoke to me about things I will talk about on another occasion but I also went also to visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe Zetzal and as I was sitting outside his office in 770 the Hasidim while I was waiting told me a story which has stayed with me from that day to this they told me the following story the Rebbe before he became the Rebbe of Lubavitch ran Kohot, which is the publishing house of Chabad. And he was, among other things, a great editor. He also made indices. He was very misunderstood. And he used typographical symbols. I've published 25 books, and I still can't use typographical symbols. But the Rebbe used them, and sometimes he used them to give a, an answer that was incredibly powerful but to do so by symbols and not by words 
And the Hasidim told me on that occasion 45 years ago of somebody who had written the Rebbe a heartfelt letter which went like this. I need the Rebbe's help. I am deeply depressed. I no longer find meaning in life. I daven, but the words do not move me. I keep mitzvot, but I'm not uplifted by them. I need the Rebbe's help. And the Rebbe gave him the most brilliant answer, and he did not use a single word. All he did was he drew a circle around the first word of every sentence. And the first word was, I. And that was the Rebbe's answer. If you want to know why you are depressed, it is because you are obsessed with the word I. As a man whom I know the Rebbe admires, very interesting story, a psychotherapist called Viktor Frankl survived Auschwitz and constructed an entire psychotherapy based on what he called man's search for meaning. Viktor Frankl always used to say, the door to happiness opens outward. In other words, if you want to find happiness, you have to stop focusing on the I and focus instead on the you. That is why the most important word in tefillah is the word atta. If you think about the key central paragraphs of the Amidah, the fourth bracha, almost, not all cases, but almost all cases, they begin with the word atta. Ata chonein la'adam da'at. Ata yetzarta. Ata kiddashta. Ata b'chadonim Why? Because to live, to achieve satisfaction and meaning and happiness, the word I is the wrong word to use. You have to use the word you. You have to be open to otherness. And years later, as I was reflecting on that story from the Rebbe, I suddenly understood Kohelet. Because the second chapter of Kohelet uses the first person singular more than any other chapter in Tanakh. Asitili, Banitili, Kanitili. All of this double I. I did this for myself. And that is why Kohelet could not find happiness despite the fact that he had everything his heart desired. Because it was all kanitili, asitili. I did it for me. And that is the avodazara of our time. The selfie, the obsession with me. Judaism sees faith as the redemption of solitude. We are not alone in the world because Hashem is there. And our connection with the Atah of Hashem allows us to make the connection of the Atah with the human other. The words Lotov, Bereshis One, contains the, the phrase Vayar Elkim Kitov. Seven times the word Tov appears in Bereshis Chapter One. The words Lotov only appear twice in the whole Chumash. Lotov Hadava. I'm uh, sorry, Lotov Heyota Adam Levado. It is not good for man to be alone. And when Yisro comes and sees Moshe Rabbeinu leading alone, 
He says, Lotov Hadava Ashatausa. You cannot live alone, you cannot lead alone. And that is why essential to the structure of Judaism is the sanctification of relationships. That's where Kedusha lies, in the relationship between husband and wife, in the relationship between parent and child, in the relationship, as it must be, between siblings. And then from there to other and greater contexts, avat which according to Chazal, the Torah commands in 36 places, and all of those are a reflex of Ahavat Hashem. Hashem is the not me in existence, the otherness. And that is why Chazal, well, that's why the Nevi'im always spoke of faith as a marriage. It's a relationship of loyalty and love. The conversation between parent and child is sacred. The concept that we are not alone in our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. The Rambam says in the Sefer Mitzvot that if you say, I will not sin, but if my neighbor sins, that is a matter for him and his God. Lo we have the principle called Yisrael Arabian Zebazeh. The lonely self has no place in Judaism. And that is why the word selfie is a sign of an age gone astray. Here we live in a generation not as affluent as it was before the Wall Street crash. I don't know if you know this. Um, three days before the world economies collapsed, there was a sale in Sotheby's. You, have you heard of Sotheby's? It's an art auction place. And uh, there was a sale three days before the crash by an English artist called Damien Hurst. Does that mean, name mean anything to you? It was, it broke the world records for the highest price ever paid for the work of a living artist. It sold for 11.5 million pounds. It consisted of a calf with hooves and horns made of gold. And it was called the Golden Calf. And it just shows how little people understand of Tanakh nowadays that they didn't realize that disaster follows when you turn gold from a medium of exchange into an object of worship. Three days later, the world economy collapsed. Anyway, so the end result is that when you worship the golden calf and you become more affluent than the dreams of our ancestors, you will discover, if you read the statistics, that in the space of the past two generations, there has been an increase between 300% and 1,000% in drug abuse, alcohol abuse, eating disorders, stress-related syndromes, and depressive illness, especially among young people. Why? Because of the word I. If we are obsessed with ourselves, we will never find happiness because we will never find otherness. And that takes me to the concept called autonomy. Now, I would love to sit and learn Torah with you.
But on this occasion, we have to stand just a little outside and learn a little bit of chokhmah. Because the concept of autonomy came from outside of Judaism. It was introduced into European culture by a philosopher, believe it or not, a philosopher after whom my predecessor as chief rabbi was named. He was named Immanuel Yakobovitz after the great philosopher Immanuel Kant. Now Kant wrote a book with a title that did not turn it into an instant bestseller. It was titled A Prolegomenon to the Metaphysics of Morals. Catchy title but didn't quite hit the bestseller list. In this book Kant drew a contrast which had an enormous impact on the history of modern thought. He distinguished between what he called heteronomy and autonomy. He was the one who introduced these concepts into moral philosophy. Heteronomy means you obey a law because somebody else made it. Autonomy means you obey a law because you made it. That is what autonomy means. Auto meaning self and nomos meaning law. It is a self-legislated law. Kant says that if you only act heteronomously, you only obey a law because somebody else made it, why then do you obey it? Either because you want reward or you fear punishment, then your behavior may be pragmatic, prudential, self-interested, but it is not moral. In order to be moral, says Kant, you have to keep the law because you made that law, you became a self-legislator. You have said, I have chosen to obey this law. You are, and you are willing to prescribe it for everyone that is what he called universalizability. Now this sounds like a fine and noble idea. The trouble is that it was a fundamental challenge to the very nature of Jewish ethics, among other things. Religious ethics in general. Why do we keep a law? Because the Kaddish Baruch Hu commanded it. And that is one of the consequences of Kantian ethics, that it is opposed to Judaic ethics. And in fact, according to the late, according to the Chazanish, and Lahavdil many Havdalot, according to the late Yeshaya Leibovitz, I don't know if they lived in the same universe or not but one way or another uh, both of them held that Judaism doesn't have a concept of ethics Shai Leibovitz said ethics says you shall love your neighbor as yourself Judaism says the Jewish insistence that we keep ethics because God commanded in other words heteronomous and that created a crisis in European in the relationship between Judaism and European culture because they seem to be incompatible. However, on this, Kant made a great, introduced a great confusion into the world of thought. A very, very great confusion. Because autonomy can mean one of two completely different things. The first thing it can mean is you act because this is how you have chosen to act. And that, according to Judaism, is not the highest of heights, it's the lowest of depths. It is the last sentence in Sefer Shoftim. Bayamim ha'em ein melech b'Yisrael ish hayashab be'enav ya'aseh. 
in those days because there was no king in Israel everyone did what they thought was fit they acted autonomously they were their own legislators that could be what Kant meant however it could mean something else altogether and here we just have to pause over a little sugya very short in length but almost infinite in its depth it occurs in the Gemara in Kiddushit Dav Lamed Beis Lamed Aleph and the top of Lamed Beis and it arises out of the following question if the Torah allocates to you a certain degree of honor may you renounce that may you say as you say in America chill can you say this so the Gemara asks a parent who wants to renounce the honor due to them may do so. So the question now arises, what is, what is the law? Yes or no? And Rav Chista says, no, ain't kvodomachal, but Rav Yosef says, I feel a Rav shemachal al kvodomachal. Even a Rav who wants to renounce the honor due to him may do so. Shnema, as it says, Vashem holech lifnehem yomam. How did Hashem travel with the Israelites in the desert? He went on ahead. Now tell me, what is... Oh, you don't have kings in America. Sorry about that. Sorry, little matter of 1776. Please forgive me for bringing it up. Uh, but if you had a king, where does the king come in a procession? You know this from a Gemara already. Where, where does royalty come? They're always the last. They always arrive on time, which means you have to be early, guys. It's simple as that. But the honor is that the king, you, you, you wait for the queen, the queen doesn't wait for you. So the, the royalty always comes last in the procession. And when HaKadosh Baruch Hu goes on ahead of the Bnei Israel, this is a proof that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Mochel HaGvodah. So, Omar Rav, Rav says, Hachi Ashda, what kind of a proof is that? Baruch Hu owns the universe. He owns the Torah. He is allowed to renounce his honor because it belongs to him. But Hacha Torah Delehu, he is a Rav, the owner of his Torah. It's Hashem's Torah. He's got to get Hashem's permission. It's not up to the Rav to be Mochal al That's Rav's first assumption. The Torah does not belong to the Rav. Therefore, the Rav doesn't own it. He can't renounce it. Then says Hadama Rava. The Gemara says Rava thought about it and changed his mind. And he changed his mind on the basis of uh, the second line in Sefer Tehillim. Uh, How does the verse begin? It says, Rabba, it says, in Torah delay, he The positive begins by describing Torah as God's Torah, but it ends by calling it His Torah. In other words, what Rava is telling us is what today in psychology is known as internalization. 
The process of moral growth is this. When we are children, we do things because our parents tell us. Then we go to school and we do things because our teachers tell us. Then we make friends and we do things because our friends tell us. But as we mature, we internalize those moral messages and they become ours. They become autonomous. They are no longer heteronymous. We're no longer keeping them because somebody else tells us to keep them. We are keeping them because we know that to be the right way to behave. And that is the true meaning of autonomy in morality. And that is a completely different understanding from the idea of autonomy is doing whatever you choose to do. The most perfect definition of this state of moral, of, of moral internalization is given by the Rambam in the 10th chapter of Hilchot Shuva, where he defines what it is to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu Me'ahava. He says, HaOved Me'ahava Oseg Batarav Mitzvot Va'olech Mintova Binetivot HaChochma Lomim Bnei Dava Sheba'ola You, somebody who serves God in love, studies Torah, keeps mitzvahs, walks in the paths of wisdom, not because of any external consideration in the world. Not because you fear punishment. And not because you want reward. You do what is true and right only because it is true and right. And the good will follow, but that's not why you do it. That is the Jewish understanding of autonomy. That is the process of moral growth, whereby we first encounter Torah as something mibachutz, Torah Hashem. But when we have learnt and studied and internalized it, Torah delayhi, it becomes our Torah, and that is why Arav can be mochal al kavodo, and that is the halacha lemais. So we understand that there are two completely different senses of the word autonomy. And Kant introduced into Western civilization a word that could mean two very different things. It could refer to the process of moral growth, whereby we internalize rules and values, or it could be a recipe for individualism in the modern life, which enthrones at the heart of moral law the I. And the trouble is that it was the second sense that prevailed in the evolution of philosophical thought in the West. First, in the 19th century, through Kierkegaard, and even more so through Nietzsche. Then in the 20th century, through the existentialists like Sartre and Camus. And then through the postmodernists. You know the postmodernists? Um, sorry, I, I, my, my simple definition uh, is, is what is the difference between the mafia and a postmodernist? The mafia makes you an offer you can't refuse, and the postmodernist makes you an offer you can't understand. <laughs> so I couldn't tell you what postmodernists are. It's just that there are people who, for incomprehensible reasons, cast doubt on any concept of truth, be it moral truth or any other kind of truth. Never believe a postmodernist because a consistent postmodernist doesn't believe himself. The result is today the only value that people agree on is autonomy, meaning the right to choose.
Meanwhile, we have a culture in which we have more choices than any culture ever faced in history. And on the other hand, we have less reason to prefer to choose one way or another way because there's nobody to tell us which way to choose. It's up to you. And this is the paradox of modernity. And it is shared by all four major institutions of modern life. The liberal democratic state, the market economy, science and technology. The liberal democratic state is the state that abdicates from making moral judgments. The market economy gives us choices but does not tell us which choices to make. Scientists tell us about the world that is but cannot tell us about the world that ought to be. Technology gives us power but cannot tell us how to use that power. When that happens we lose all sense of ethics. And that is our condition today. Secular society is today in a post-moral condition where the only thing that matters is autonomy in the sense of ish hayashab So now medicine with abortion on demand and although it hasn't come to the States yet, it is coming to Europe and will eventually come here. The right to die, assisted dying, euthanasia sexual ethics, whatever works for you, business ethics, whatever makes a profit, and you rely on regulatory authorities to enforce a morality that no one has internalized, and let me tell you that no regulatory authority will ever work since they pay people more to outsmart the regulatory authority than they pay people who sit on the regulatory authority. So every regulatory authority will inevitably fail. That is a guarantee. So we have inhabited and inherited a post-moral world. What, therefore, is our task as Jews? Our task is to humbly insist. As HaKadosh Baruch Hu insisted from day one, the key word of Bereshis 1 is the word Tov. That is a moral word. The universe is moral. We insist that a free society is a moral achievement. A free society can only exist if I am willing to restrain my freedom so that you too can be free. And the result is that we have to say to the world with real humility, Kavra, you are getting this wrong. I think we have to insist on the truth of ten propositions. Number one, the inalienable dignity of the human person, B'Tselem Elohim, B'Tselmenu Kidmutenu, in the image of God. Number two, Again, Sam Harris and all the other scientific determinists, the truth is that we are free. We have free will. As Isaac Bashevis Singer said, we have to be free. We have no choice. <laughs> and therefore, if we are free, we are moral agents and we are morally responsible for what we do. Number three, life has sanctity. It belongs to Hashem, not to us. Therefore, it is not under our autonomous say-so whether to end it, God forbid. Four, 
the transcendence of justice. Ki yedativ lomana she yetzavet banavet beta achara b'shamru derech Hashem la'asot tzedakau mishpat. You cannot have a free society without justice. Number five, the imperative of compassion. Ve'erastichli b'tzedik v'mishpat uv'chesed uv'rachamim. The word loving kindness was coined in 1535 by Miles Coverdale when he made the first translation of Tanakh into English and discovered that the English language does not have a word that means chesed. That's why the word loving kindness was invented by him to translate that word into. Number six, social inclusion. That a society cannot be one in which people on the one hand are ultra rich and on the other people are sleeping on the street. Social inclusion, hager hayatom v'halmanah, the stranger, the widow and orphan have to be given dignity. Number seven, the moral limits of power. The fundamental principle of the Torah that right is sovereign over might. Number eight, we reach our full dignity as human beings through education. The Torah gave us the only way to an equal society that has ever worked. Human societies have aspired to equality in two different ways. An equality of wealth or an equality of power. They have always failed because in the short term wealth and power are zero-sum games. The more you have, the less I have. The more I have, the less you have. And therefore they will always be arenas of conflict. Judaism created an equal society by saying everyone has equal access to education. And that works because the Rambam in Hilchus Talmud Torah chapter 3 why? because the more knowledge I share I don't have less I may even have more it is the only non-zero sum game the only theory of equality that ever worked number 9 love as the basis of society love of God love of nature neighbor and love of stranger and number 10 the ethic of repentance atonement and forgiveness I can't go into those details but they are fundamentally the principles that Judaism gave the western world and if the western world loses them as it is losing them right now it will decline from greatness to the power that was but is no longer those are the elements that Judaism teaches the world and they are fundamental. It is not true that Judaism is the only way of living a moral life. There have been other ways of living moral lives. The ethics of Plato, of Aristotle, of the Stoics, of the Epicureans, of Taoism, of Confucianism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and so on. But the Jewish ethic gave humanity its full dignity, and there never was a moral system like it. Others have tried to imitate it, but this remains, as Coca-Cola used to say, the real thing. Therefore, always appreciate this. I don't know if you ever came across a book called A History of the Jews by Paul Johnson. Did you ever see this book? It's a wonderful book. Paul Johnson is a Catholic. I invited Paul Johnson for dinner on one occasion, and I said, Paul... You must have spent years studying Judaism. You're a non-Jew. What did you learn from your study of Judaism? And he said to me a very beautiful thing. 
He said there have been some civilizations in history that emphasize the individual. There have been others that emphasize the collective. He said Judaism is the only civilization I know that equally values the individual and the collective. In other words, this Catholic, without quite fully realizing what he was saying, was summarizing what Hillel taught us. But That is the issue. So in an age which turned autonomy into an idol, we have to emphasize that Judaism teaches that you cannot reach happiness, wisdom, or truth by autonomy alone in the sense of the I. It is our connection with others, mediated by our connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that makes all the difference. And we do believe in autonomy, but in that second sense of so internalizing the law that it becomes our will, not just Hashem's will. And that is what allows us to move beyond Kohelet in the age, in his, at the stage of his life, when he was doing things just for himself, and he called things Havel, Havalem, Hakol, Havel. It was only when Kohelet learned to value things beyond that. The value of work and of love, that he found happiness. Real autonomy simply means so internalizing Hashem's word that we fulfill in our lives the beautiful words of Yirmiyahu Hanavi, who said, Natati Torati Bekirbam Vaalibam Echtevena. I will. Right, give Torah into their very essence and I will inscribe it on their hearts. That's what happens when you take Hashem's will and make it yours. You are Oseh HaEmet Mibnei Emet. Real autonomy comes when we realize that there is a world beyond my desires and my devices. The world that Hashem created in love and forgiveness asking us to love and forgive others. When we open ourselves to the Atta of Hashem, we open ourselves to the human other. Happiness begins where autonomy ends, when we worship not the I, but the we of humanity. And not just the we of humanity, but the you of God. Amen.